Hello, and welcome to the Kidney Cast. I'm Laura Morris. And I'm Ari Deckard. This is our podcast where I interview Ari about his experiences with Alport syndrome and his three kidney transplants and all the other medical things that he had to deal with during his life or so far has had to deal with during his life. <laughs> so Ari, in the last episode, we talked about your first year back to college. You went to Central Washington after receiving your second kidney transplant from your Uncle Michael. Yeah. You've completed your first ever full year of college without having to drop out or take serious time off because of your health. Uh-huh. But then during the summer term, you had these bad mystery stomach issues that kept resurfacing, and you had to go home for the summer, and you were hospitalized for a very long time while doctors tried to figure out what was going on with you. And so yes. I think we're going to just pick up the story right there, still in the hospital during that summer term, dealing with the mystery stomach problems. Okay. I felt like I was trying to be maybe a little bit delicate last time, and so I want to be clear that these were really very serious stomach issues. I was... Oh, yeah. It, I, I was I was throwing up fairly regularly. I had a lot of diarrhea, um, and... It wasn't just that. The reason I was hospitalized eventually, I mean, that level of gastrointestinal issues or GI stuff um, is obviously very serious. There's clearly something going on. But also there was noticeable blood in both of those things. It was really bad. And I, I remember my dad taking sort of the brunt of taking care of me. I specifically have a, a memory of like getting out of bed feeling really bad, going to the bathroom and having all kinds of disgusting issues. Um, and I think, you know, not quite making it to the toilet stuff, like, you know, it was not great. And then kind of calling my dad weekly and saying, I'm really sorry, I have to go back to bed. Um, and then him taking care of a lot of stuff like that. I don't know if this is a thing in other people's families, but in Hours when I was growing up, anytime we as kids, uh, my sister and I had, you know, some kind of bug or something where we were throwing up, there were a couple of bowls that <laughs> were the specific um, throw-up bowls that would be placed beside your bed. And, um, you know, after years as a kid, if it's, it's the same bowl, it's, it's, it's weirdly comforting while also being like, oh, here's that bowl. That means it's this level of serious. Hello, my old friend. That's right. And so those bowls made a reappearance, and it was very strange, you know, I don't know, maybe even 20 years later in some ways, uh, at that point to be like, oh, right, this is the bowl that comes out, and um, I'm throwing up. So uh, sort of trying to move past the those disgusting details. So then I was in the hospital. I was in the hospital for a very long time because my tummy essentially was so sensitive they were blending all of my food yeah you were for sometimes you were on the completely liquid diet in the for hospital a long time, yeah. they, so you just get juices and anything that is actually liquid broth and then yeah they might move up to okay maybe you can have some jello right and the weird thing is, yeah, when you go on sort of a puree, like, oh, you've moved up to purees, where like breakfast comes in and it's an omelet. Mm -hmm. But what they've done is <laughs> blended up those eggs so much and then put them in a little moon shape as if someone had made the omelet. Like it's these weird little shapes that are just made mm -hmm. out of the pureed food. Like you had one that was chicken, but it was like kind of the puree was put like a drumstick. Yeah, it, they were cute with it. And that was nice, but it, it was strange. That was a thing too, where... I was in pain from eating. So I would eat this very small portion that was, they had done everything they could possibly do to make it as easy for me to like tolerate it. And then I would be in serious pain. And so there, there was a ritual for, I want to say like two weeks or so where they would bring me my dinner. I would eat it kind of slowly. And then 45 minutes later, I would push the call button and my nurse would come in and I would say, hey, I'm having some serious stomach pain. And she would ask me how bad it was. And I would say, it's a five probably. And she would say, okay. And she would come and give me a pain med injection and that would put me to sleep. And I would say goodbye to you. Yeah, you had a cycle in the hospital, and that's I was learning the rhythms of how to be a person mm -hmm. in the hospital for someone else. Because <laughs> yeah. there's a lot of waiting. You, know, you show up, you've got a book, Ari is sleeping. Right. And you slept for most of the day, and then you'd, mm -hmm. you'd wake up, and we'd maybe socialize and kind of try to keep it light and happy for like an hour. 
And then sometime during that time, you would try to have some food because this was very important to everyone that you try to eat, of course. Yeah. And you would have, you know, you'd open up your little tiny bit of soup broth with no solids in it. And I felt like you would drink maybe four sips. Mm -hmm. And then you'd start wincing and you'd start to be in pain. And yeah, you'd press that call button and the nurse would come and give you your, your IV pain meds and you'd fall asleep again for hours and hours. And that was kind of just the cycle always. Yeah. It was not fun. I was glad when that mostly got better. I also remember, because this is actually me getting to know your parents pretty well during <laughs> yeah. this time, and I was in the hospital a lot, so I needed books while you were sleeping, mm -hmm. and I just asked your mom, because she's a librarian, oh, could you <laughs> loan me some books? And for whatever reason, the book that I decided to borrow from her to read while you were sleeping in this tense situation okay. was Angela's Ashes. Oh, no, that's right. <laughs> so that's the book I read to take my mind off this this hard time while I was reading it. Just, oh, look, they're, they're children starving in Ireland. I don't think their mom is doing too well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but so eventually, it didn't. See, I don't think it was really through any specific kind of medical intervention other than just really giving me a lot of time to kind of rest and relax and heal by not agitating my stomach too much, my symptoms got better. And so they released me from the hospital. But I think they switched around your meds. Like I said in the last episode, they were playing around with probabilities. Oh, this might be the next most likely culprit. Let's try to swap this. And doing the changes also that would be easier because there's certain things they can't take you off and protect the health of the kidney. Yes. So they were kind of doing this risk analysis and this probability analysis to change some things around and maybe that'll fix it. Right, right. And so maybe that helped. Um, and I'm saying maybe because the solution did actually present itself, but it was months and months down the road and they hadn't actually figured that out yet. Uh, but something helped. And so after, like we said, like about a month, I was ready to go home, which was really great. I should say also, you know, I don't think about these, we're talking about several rather serious, you know, a month long stay in the hospital is incredibly long. And I don't really think about these, these hospital stays that occur over this year that much, um, not necessarily because they're painful or anything like that, but because they're over, it was a long time ago, and we figured it out and I moved on. But yeah, it's been 10 years. Yeah, it's been 10 years. Uh, but this, this particular visit was also notable for one thing that has always stuck out to me. And this is a part that I sometimes mention to indicate how serious some of my health issues are. You know, it, it's one thing to say, well, I was in the hospital for a month and people kind of can't, I don't know. It's not that they can't comprehend it, but it's, that's just a, Oh, a month. Okay. And you don't really think exactly what that means. Well, it takes two seconds when it comes out of your mouth, but when you had to live it, you did the full month. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But the other thing that happened because I was so bedridden, you know, often when I'm in the hospital, they're always wanting to get up and walk and, and do that. And I'm, I'm a very compliant patient and I do that. And it's good for me. It feels good. But I was in so much pain so regularly and also so tired and out of it from all of the pain and also then the drugs that they were giving me to overcome the pain, um, which were heavy narcotics, that I was in bed for like constantly for most of that month uh, to the point where about week three or so, I needed they needed me to get up out of bed. And it turned out that my body had basically forgotten how to walk. And that's a really, really weird feeling. Yeah, so describe how that feels. I think most people don't think, and I certainly don't, think about walking. Um, you know, I at various times I've read about robots and stuff. I was very fascinated, like I said, with like space and technology as a kid. And so I, I remember reading about if you want a, a robot to walk, you have to like give it really specific instructions and knowledge that are so micromanaged compared to what a human does and the idea is like as a human we just think i want to go over there once we've learned to walk and then we do and that's been a natural thing you've been doing since however old you were when you started walking and i was in my late 20s and i got up and said okay now i'm going to walk to the bathroom or to the other bed they need me to walk to or something and like nothing happened and I wouldn't say that I fell, because I, I didn't. I was able to basically stand upright, and they were holding me so I didn't fall. But just nothing happened. 
like, okay, now I'm going to walk over there. Wait, I'm still here. What's happening? And I had to then start really concentrating sort of like a robot on, okay, I need to move this part of my leg. So how do I do that? And that's a really, really bizarre feeling. I, I don't know that I can describe it any better than that. I had to sort of concentrate on really little micro bits of my body and like sort of the subsets of walking. Well, first I need to move forward maybe my knee or maybe I need to lift my leg and then I need to kind of swing it forward. This was a thing that was actually relatively easy to overcome. Once they realized that that was happening, then they said, okay, we're going to walk with you every day, no matter what. And then you came and walked with me and it was good. Yeah, we kind of just did laps around the nurse's station on the floor. Yeah, like we always do. Right, where you'd have the, the IV pole to, to steady you on one side yeah. and then you me on, on the, the other. other side. Yeah, and... And that was really great, but the first few days of that were, were very strange. It's not like I, so I guess what I'm saying is I, it, I didn't require physical therapy. This wasn't one of those long roads to recovery and relearning to walk. It was just, there were a few days there, maybe a week where walking was just something my body did not remember how to do. And it, it's very, very weird. It was, it was terrifying, obviously at first and then we figured it out and it was it was okay but that to me has always been kind of a a touchstone or a a large data point in the fact that oh that was quite serious it wasn't just oh i was in the hospital for a month i wasn't just hanging out i was in such a bad way that i i was so bedridden that my body didn't remember how to walk that's crazy yeah I've been thinking about this quite a bit as we prepare for these kind of the last episode and the next series of episodes where we're going to talk about kind of just thing after thing after thing that's pretty serious. Yeah. And I think that I struggle with that because this is um, an era of your life that I was there for. Right. As I will be for everything going forward. Yeah. But I can tell the story of this time where it's just, and then this terrible thing happened, and Ari was in the hospital, and then this thing happened, and he was in such pain, and then this thing happened, and he had to go back to the hospital, and kind of disaster, disaster, disaster. Right. And that wouldn't be inaccurate, mm -hmm. but I can also tell the story of that year and a half, where it was, Ari and I started dating, but I was so happy, and, mm -hmm. you know, I remember driving across the mountains to go visit him at school, or not driving, but being in the, being on a Greyhound bus, and... Mm -hmm. I could tell the whole yeah. story of that era that's just that, and that wouldn't be inaccurate either. No, no. And, and kind of I've thought about this while doing the podcast. Oh, we could tell this story or that story, but not that one because that doesn't have anything to do with Ari's health. <laughs> right. But, but the thing is, every story in your life has something to do with your health, yeah. even if it's just this was a time when I was doing well enough that I could do this other thing. Yeah, yeah, that's very true. And I wonder, because you also talk about, especially in the early episodes, and but still about how you had a hard time thinking of yourself as disabled. Yes. And I've, I've heard that from other people too. And I wonder if it's because often the way that we tell narratives about illness, right? You only tell the story that's quote unquote related to your health. So you tell all these bad stories. Yeah. And I wonder if for you, you look at kind of the, the disabled narrative or the chronic illness narrative and you think, well, my life hasn't just been nightmare after nightmare you know, there's been <laughs> yeah. and, and so it's harder to think i am disabled yeah there's also an essential contradiction here where i've talked about you know i didn't think of myself as disabled i didn't like thinking about that or i didn't like defining myself as somebody with chronic disease or with a disability but at the same time i was keenly aware of it you know i talked about i think in high school for instance like, I certainly was interested in dating, and I had people I had crushes on and, you know, really strong likes for and stuff like that, but I also had this feeling like I don't think it would be fair to them to maybe ask them out or try to be in a relationship with any of those people because I'm sick. And that's a really weird thing to keep in the same head, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, I'm not disabled, but I'm so disabled I shouldn't date. Um, and I mean, I also kind of think in retrospect, that was probably silly, but you know, I was a teenager. Who knows? I'd totally date her if I wasn't sick. That's the, she, she should definitely say yes. The only obstacle here is. Right. Yeah. Well, and it wasn't, I mean, there was also a lot of self-confidence issues, obviously, but, um, it was a pretty good excuse for not, for a shy person not putting myself out there. So after about four weeks, having felt better, um, they released me from the hospital, but I 
I made a decision at that point. They were releasing me from the hospital with enough time, not very many days, it was I think a matter of days, that I could have physically, temporally, gone back to Central Washington for the fall semester. And I really wanted to. But I also was pretty cognizant of the fact that I had just been in the hospital for a solid month. I was being released, not like, yippee skippy, I can do cartwheels now, because I had only just recently kind of relearned how to walk in a way. And I thought, you know, I should play this safe. And so I did. I, I took a semester off. I took basically a leave of absence. I was in contact with my percussion professor, of course, and I said, you know, tell me what I should be doing. What should I work on? What should I play? during this semester, and I will do that at home, but physically, I just can't be there. And he was super understanding. I mean, he'd known me during high school. He'd known me for a long time. He knew what was up. So that was really helpful, and of course, the university was great, but I did lose my sweet little condo, uh, which made me a little sad. There was a really cool music opportunity that took place, and my professor was super helpful. He had wanted me to participate as part of this small, I think, select group of his students. There were, I, I want to say, four to six of us to perform with one of the professional groups that he performed and I think still performs with in Portland as a collaboration. It's called the Third Angle New Music Ensemble, and I, I, I really like them. And so, so he called me and he said, hey, if it's possible... I'd like you to still participate in this. I can send you the music. You can practice it at home if you're available and feeling well enough for this or think you will be by whenever it was. I think it was like November. You could maybe come up and do a couple rehearsals with us and then we'll do the gig in Portland a week later, which is where you live anyway. Can you do that? And I had been feeling steadily better and better. I was really jazzed by that. It was great. So I did that. I practiced very diligently. And I remember... Having something to practice, having a gig to prepare for, gave you energy, gave yeah. you motivation to shake off this sort of sickly pallor that you had hanging around you. It didn't cure you, but it did give you some energy. Yeah, I, I needed that drive, and I needed I needed to be doing something with music. That was a really great gift that he gave me. And so then I, I went up, and I did the rehearsal. I stayed with some friends. I think one of those days we didn't have rehearsals, so I hopped in my car and drove across the mountain range uh, and visited you at the University of Washington, where you were going to school at that point. We did the gig. It was great, and I've been feeling, you know, better and better. And so by the time the second semester rolled around, I was ready to go back to school. How was that, getting back to school after taking that time off? It was surprisingly easy. I was worried about the housing thing, but because I couldn't really get school housing anymore. They, all their stuff was taken. I talked to them and they said, we'd really love to help, but we've already given everything away. And we know you don't want to live in the dorms. And at that point, I really didn't. And so, you know, there's tons of kind of student apartments around town. That's the majority of the population in Ellensburg, Washington is students at the university. Uh, the population fluctuates drastically during the summer when all the kids go home. So I shopped around and there was one place where somebody had to give up, had to give up her, her place because she was having some, some issues of her own. So that, that was very smooth. Um, I got this new apartment. It was cool. Went back to classes and I was, you know, going along doing pretty well. But you've already taken some time off and you have these mystery ailments yeah. plaguing you. And so I'm curious to ask you to talk about were you starting to have that specter of what if this turns out like Lawrence again? Did you feel like there was that risk, like I'm being taken out of the normal flow, I'm going to get taken away from my plan? Yes, but also not quite. Yes, because of course, my health has always been like, is this going to mess things up for me? Or my feelings about my health have always been like that, and this was obviously a situation where, you know, I did just take a semester off. Oh, no, I'm not 100% back to feeling better. Some of my labs are no longer as good as they were the year before. Uh, there's lots of things like that. But at the same time, I was like, okay, but I'm not going to let this stop me. So I took a semester. Cool. Now it's back to, I, I have a goal. 
want to keep pushing towards it. And it was different from how things had worked at Lawrence, where everything was going pretty great, and then it went pretty sharply down, and then they fixed it, and then it went, like, really, really bad. So it was similar but different. I was definitely nervous, but I'd already been cautious and thus playing it really a lot safer. I think it's obvious to see that. You know, it's really trying to go, okay, am I good? Then let's do this and let's be cautious because I really wanted to finish. I really enjoyed that victory of making it through a year without dropping any classes or anything. I thought, okay, so one semester, fine. But it's I took a whole semester, not just, hey, can I show up a few days late or something? Just took that semester so I'd be ready for this second semester. And so I was feeling pretty confident at the beginning of that semester. How did that semester go for you? Um, not Not the way I was hoping it would. Uh, it started out pretty strong, but then there started to be other things. School was going pretty well. My lessons were going well. I was doing well in my theory and history classes and my gen ed courses. Um, I think I took psychology that semester, which was surprisingly fun. Uh, it, it was good. I was still occasionally having some GI things. But they were nowhere near as severe, and I kind of thought, well, you know, I, I did spend a really long time with stuff being kind of torn up in there, and I'm still recovering, and I was cooking for myself, so I was able to really control what my intake was and make sure that I was eating things that were, like, good and easy for me. That That was all going pretty well. But yeah, I was, you know, I was nervous. Like you said, I was a little nervous because I was having little symptoms here or there. And we've talked a little bit about going across the mountains. Yeah. And I think for this part of the story, it's going to be important to understand the geography of Ellensburg and Central Washington University. Sure. If you're trying to get to Central Washington and Ellensburg from Western Oregon or Western Washington, Portland, where Ari's parents live, or Seattle, where I was going to college. Yeah. You need to go over the mountain, the Cascade Mountain Range, yeah. to get to the central part of the state. And that's a big winding path. Mm-hmm. And so in order to get there, you the way I would get there to visit you on the weekends was to take a bus through the Snoqualmie Pass. Yes. Which is a winding mountain road. Um, the most famous thing about it is that Snoqualmie, the town in Washington, was used to film a lot of the exteriors for the TV series Twin Peaks, mm-hmm. including most famously that big waterfall. Yes. I'm not just telling this as a fun fact, though. <laughs> this this pass is important because it also sometimes in the winter gets very, very snowy, and the pass can become blocked, which means right. there is not transit from the western part of the state to the central or eastern part of the state. Yeah, there's about three passes through the mountains. The Cascade Mountain Range is a very, very big, tall mountain range. There was even a time where you came to visit me over a weekend, and then there had been a snowstorm, as there often is, and you couldn't get back home. Right. I missed two college classes because I was stuck in Ellensburg because of an avalanche. (laughs) That's right. There was an avalanche because that's the other thing that happens. Uh, They're very narrow winding passes, and there's tall mountains. It was while it was nice having you for that extra day, you know, that had caused us some problems before, and there had been a a time or two when trying to get my obviously very important transplant medications was a little bit iffy because there was some shipping issue because the passes were closed. There are other ways to get to Ellensburg, you know, other than over the mountain range in Washington, but they take significantly longer. And sometimes the stores in Ellensburg are just like, yeah, we're out during the winter. And That's not fun, but residents are kind of used to it. But when you go to a pharmacist and you say, hey, I need Prograph, which is an extremely expensive and important transplant medication that is only used for that, and they say, oh, it hasn't arrived yet. And, you know, I have a prescription and it is up and it's due and they know all that. And you say, okay, but you know I need it. And they're like, yeah, I do know. They start calling around. And pharmacists are great about that. And this particular one was was very helpful, but there were a couple of times where I had a couple of days like, all right, I've got three more pills. Is this going to work? And it, it did because the passes would be closed sometimes for days at a time, but it, it was okay. But then, then we ran into this, this other issue. And at the time I was on, I think four separate blood pressure medications. That's a lot. That'll come up later. 
but I had high blood pressure. My there's high blood pressure in my family, and um, I started on none. I think back in high school, and then I was on one, and that wasn't quite doing it. And then eventually, I was on four. And some of those, I think, were the meds that were switched around a little bit while I had been in the hospital over the summer. And I think they'd added another one because my blood pressure was high then. And the new one was actually a patch, which was kind of fun. I mean, I've been taking oral meds most of my life. And I take so many and have done so for so long that one more pill is not a big deal. I take them all at once with a swallow of water and people look at me like I'm crazy and you have no idea. It's easy, easy, easy. But a patch was novel and kind of interesting. And so, um, you know, you wear it like a, a, a nicotine patch, I've heard, mostly because somebody saw it one time and were like, dude, I didn't know you were trying to stop smoking. And I was like, what are you? T oh, right. No, this is for my blood pressure. And then they thought I was lying. But so I, I wore this patch and it had to be changed every couple of days. And I was fine with it. You know, it was it was easy. But then it was getting close to running out. And the pharmacy was out and they said, Oh, we'll order it. And that was fine. I had it enough or the the, the last two patches or something were going to last, you know, for the time it would take to order. But then there was a very, very bad snowstorm and the passes were closed for quite a while, maybe almost a week. Mm -hmm, that's what I remember. And what that meant was that the medication ran out. Um, they didn't get it. And you're not supposed to keep wearing the patch past a certain time. There's a lot of specific windows with patches. And I started getting really sick in some brand new ways. I got very tired and confused. And um, I remember going to bed, like getting in bed, just like, I can't do this. I think I probably skipped class. Uh, and I, I got in bed. And then I woke up to a friend of mine shaking me. And I think this is actually part of the story that I should interject because I have... I think you should, yeah. So... Yeah, you were getting sick in new ways. We were conducting a long-distance relationship. I was in college in Seattle. You were across the mountains. Yeah. And we'd been talking on the phone, and you were getting sicker. And we had this conversation on the phone. You'd been missing some class, you told me. Mm -hmm. And you, the way you were talking to me was weird. You know, you get used to... We'd been dating for almost a year. You know a person. Yeah. And you sounded really off. And you sounded mm -hmm. really sick. Okay. And you told me, I can't be on the phone anymore. I'm just too tired. I have to go to bed. Mm. And we got off the phone and it was one of those things where I sat there for a second and I said, like, I just, that felt really weird. He didn't sound like himself. I don't feel good about this. And yeah. there's, there's nothing I can do. <laughs> so I called your friend, Eric, who mm -hmm. was going to school at Central Washington. And I felt really awkward because <laughs> this is somebody I've met a couple of times. He's like your college friend. Right. And I said, Eric... I'm really sorry to bother you, and I know that this is probably nothing, but it would really, really make me feel better if you would go by Ari's apartment and check on him. It just, I f it feels bad. Something feels wrong. Mm -hmm. I, I would really appreciate it. And I, I, again, I felt really, really awkward asking because you never want to be super alarmist. You don't want to ask people to go out of their way, and it turns out everything's fine because then you seem like the nervous, anxious person. Yeah. But he was really nice, and he said, yes, of course, as soon as I get done with class, I'll drive by the apartment and check on him. Yeah. And so he did. Um, I remember when he woke me up that I, it was very cold and not like I was sick and so it was cold, but it was actually cold in the apartment. And I can, I think I can say like, I know now that what had happened was I had come home probably from the store. Like I, I don't think I was going to school, but I needed food. So I'd gone to the store and that had been a tricky experience because I had been having trouble seeing. It seemed like, not that my vision was blurry, but that it had narrowed, and I had to kind of look a little bit out of the side of my eye a little bit. And so Ellensburg is a very small town, but I drove really slow, and I remember it took me a long time because I just kept pulling over because somebody was behind me, and I thought, I don't want to be the weirdo going 10 miles an hour like I am and blocking things. But I was having trouble seeing and I was scared. And the thing is, like, it was truly about a 10 block drive to go to the store from where I lived. But that was stupid. You know, <laughs> I could have called Eric. I could have called any number of people. But I was not 
super in my right mind uh, in retrospect. So I had come home and gone up the, the stairs to, the, to my apartment, and I thought I had closed the door, but it had actually just sort of swung kind of close to closing and had not latched, and then the wind had blown it open. So what Eric told me later, several days later, was that he had arrived, the door was wide open, which means there's probably like snow in the apartment, and I was in bed, and the apartment was a mess. Yeah, he called me and he was freaked out. He said, I, yeah. I got to Ari's apartment, the door is just wide open, he's just asleep on top of the covers, he's having serious trouble seeing, I think he's close to, to blind, I don't know what's going on, mm -hmm. and he won't stop throwing up. Right. He said, there's there's vomit everywhere. I don't know what to do. And he was one of those things where we were both really scared. And I could tell, like, I was nervous on the phone and he was nervous. And what he was saying is, should I take him to the hospital? And I was saying, I think so, but I don't want to be the person who tells you to take him to the hospital for nothing because there's not a hospital in Ellensburg. There is a hospital in Ellensburg. It mostly deals with hunting accidents because it's very small and Ellensburg is very remote well, in that way. What he ended up doing was packing you in the car and taking you to Yakima. Yes, which is near-ish by, but not that nearby. And I, I want to say that this actually relates to a conversation that either he and I had had at some point, or you and I, or all of us, where I had, I think, casually mentioned, if ever there's some kind of emergency, boy, do I not want to go to that Ellensburg hospital. And I don't really want to cast aspersions, but I'm totally doing that. The Ellensburg Hospital is extremely small, and they deal with a very small subset of things. They see the local residents for their regular stuff, except for the local residents who go out of town to see a regular doctor, which is not that big a deal for them. But it's it's really small. They have an emergency room. I, I, I have never been there, but I had several friends who had, and they were not happy with just the level of care they had received for whatever they did. There was a student health center, which was probably just about as robust as the hospital there. And so I had said something like, man, if I ever have to go to a hospital and there isn't time for me to get all the way back to Portland OHSU, I'm at least going to Yakima. So Eric and his girlfriend got me. And I, I don't remember a lot of this. Like, for instance, I think I was vaguely aware that he was on the phone with you, but I think he woke me up and we talked and I said some things maybe, but then I think I just fell back asleep. Yeah, he couldn't keep you awake. Yeah, I was having trouble maintaining consciousness. It was not great. And so I'm not very tall, but he's actually shorter than me. He's very strong though. So he kind of helped me stumble down the single flight of stairs uh, from my apartment down to the parking lot to his car. And... That was the point where I realized and identified internally that I wasn't just having a little trouble seeing like maybe I was kind of bleary, but that I was blind. I wouldn't say 100%, but maybe about 90%. And it was sort of a pinhole blindness. If I looked down at one specific spot, I could kind of see. But obviously that makes traversing and getting someplace very difficult. He was very helpful and helped me get down the stairs and into the car and maybe even I said, please don't take me to Ellensburg Hospital. Please take me to Yakima. And they were like, don't worry. And so we drove. I probably fell asleep again. And they got me to the emergency room. And I think we were seen really quickly, but I don't know because I was sort of in and out of consciousness there. He ended up calling me several times in the emergency room. And he was freaked out for obvious reasons, but... He was trying really, really hard to do right by you in this situation. I wasn't there. Your parents weren't there. Yeah. You weren't really able to speak for yourself. And so he's trying to explain to an emergency room nurse who has never met you, this is my friend Ari. He's having this bad thing happen to him. He's got serious health problems. I know, like, and Eric's like, I know he's had a transplant. He's got, he's got other stuff, though. He's got mm -hmm. special stuff. And the nurse kind of being like, hey, we're not just some bumpkin hospital. We know about kidney transplants, okay? And Eric yeah. being like, no, 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 there's more complicated things going on. And him calling me and me calling your parents so that we were all trying to remember what are all the drugs you're on? What did they recently change it to since you were on, in the hospital? Because your list was totally different now. Uh -huh. And what things did the doctors determine that you were allergic to? What is your bad reactions list currently? Yes. And he was freaked out. He was trying really, really hard to advocate for you. Yeah, and he actually did a great job. There were a couple of things 
that actually I, I get to take a little bit of credit for my help here. And you should. But mostly, like, essentially, you know, Eric saved my life that night. And I don't want to take that away from him, although I think I think he would be um, maybe a little embarrassed at that. But he did. And I, I, I absolutely think that's true based yeah. on the circumstances. But I, here are the things that I, I did <laughs> that help facilitate because... I know my health very well. I know my meds very well, but I also was concerned, hey, I'm kind of, I'm not with it. I was occasionally with it enough to know that I wasn't. And so I, at that point, I kept all of my medication bottles in a plastic tub. And I remember saying either to him or his girlfriend, take that, take every pill bottle that is there, take that. Because I wasn't sure if I'd be conscious or if I'd be able to remember off the top of my head all you know, let's say 12 medications I was on at that point. But there they all were with the full prescriptions and phone numbers of doctors and things like that. And so I said, take that. And they did. And that was very helpful because he couldn't remember the medications. And then they started trying to do intake in the emergency room with me. And like I said, I know, you know, I know my stuff, but I was in and out. And I was also trying to advocate and say, I'm a transplant patient. I have this. I have this. I have these issues. And they were kind of doing that same thing. Like the nurse in particular said, listen, I worked at a dialysis center for three years. I know this stuff. And I was like, this isn't dialysis, but I didn't want to be rude. <laughs> it's strange. Like I didn't want to be rude. I was trying to advocate for myself, but I didn't want to be like doing in-center dialysis is not the same as the two transplants and the whatever happened over the summer that we still don't know and the liver biopsies and the everything else. And I have this super rare disease that I don't think you've heard of. And that's not because you're not good at your job. But <laughs> all of that is to say I had a bucket of meds and I was finally able to because I'm not sure they knew why that was there. They just like had brought a bunch of stuff that I had said, like, take that and maybe my backpack. And, you know, I just kind of pointed to some, to some things and they brought it. And so I said, all my meds are in there. And I <laughs> amazingly was able to, off the top of my head, to say, this is the phone number of my nurse at OHSU. And this is where they, I think they felt kind of defensive because I'm saying, call my research hospital please call her. And I kept saying that, please call her. And my dad, I think was on the phone at some point. And you know, he, it was, this was a chaos of crisscrossing phone calls. This it, it night. was a lot. And, and I do not at any point want to say that there, cause there was one nurse and one doctor helping me out. And I don't want to say like that they actually were bumpkins and I was being no, of course right not. Them. They were actually, they were very, very good. I was in that moment panicked and concerned that they didn't know and they weren't they were not helping even though they thought they were by saying listen i've done dialysis i know about kidney stuff when i was like okay but i don't think you do um but they knew what they needed to know they were able to, able to take blood i think and then i also remember them taking my blood pressure and i remember kind of leaning over and i don't remember why i was leaning i felt like i should lean but then she had like started the blood pressure machine. It was an automatic machine and turned to grab something. And she turned back and I was almost horizontal in the chair. And I was awake, but I was like, this is how I should be. And she was like, oh, no, we need to sit you up now, as all wonderful caring nurses always do, not making me feel like a moron who doesn't know what he's doing because I was and didn't. And really took good care of me. And I remember the doctor saying, like, she's saving your life right now. And I was like, I don't know, is she? <laughs> but she was. Uh, what happened was this blood pressure medication in a patch, part of the reason for all of the rules, which I don't think I'd ever actually been told, but part of the reason for all these rules is that it's the kind of medication that you have to keep taking. And when they want to stop the medication, you have to taper off of it. Because if you stop taking it suddenly, as I had had to do because the passes were closed, you have what's called a rebound reaction. Because your body has become used to having this medicine on board. And when it goes away, it kind of freaks out. And so my blood pressure was something like made up. It was like 250 over 180. It was exceptionally high. And because it was so high, that was causing my blindness and all these other things. Like, you can't have a blood pressure that high. I was really, really in bad shape, obviously. Yeah, when we say that Eric and going and checking on you and taking you to the hospital 
probably saved your life. That yeah. is absolutely true. The the blood your blood pressure was so high it could have killed you. Yeah, it was not hyperbole. It's not hyperbole to say that. And um, I think there's an important element to this story because you talk about trying to advocate to yourself but not wanting to be rude. I talk about <laughs> feeling awkward calling Eric, oh, am I asking for too much? Oh, am I blowing this up too much? Mm-hmm. But I think that the important thing to say is sort of a takeaway is like if something feels wrong, you should follow up. Yeah. Ask for the help you need. Ask that person to go check on somebody because – you know, it might be a little embarrassing if they go and, oh, Ari was just watching TV. He's fine. You know, that's a little embarrassing. Mm. But the other consequence, if I had not asked and he had not gone and checked, would have been terrible. Oh, yeah. And so if something doesn't feel right, ask for the help. Take the action that you need to take. Don't worry about being a little awkward or embarrassing yourself. <laughs> the, like the, the, yeah. the other consequence is worse. Yeah, yeah. It was very, very important, obviously. Uh, so they were able to get my blood pressure under control eventually. It took about a week. I was in the hospital in Yakima for about a week, and it took about, I don't know, four or five days for my vision to fully come back, which caused its own level of awkwardness because sometimes people would come in to talk to me and, you know, offer me their hand to shake, and I would just keep staring at their face because it was not within my field of vision. And then I would notice that something was happening, like, they're looking at me odd, like I'm being rude, and I would go, I don't know what's happening, and then I would kind of glance down and realize, oh, they're holding out their hand to be shaken. That was a very strange experience, and I had to, you know, I had to call a bunch of people while I was recovering and say, hey, I'm actually, like, in the hospital, I went blind, I had to go to the emergency room, and it's very strange, and I don't know how to explain it, and please excuse me from class. I missed the first quiz in I, th- I think my psychology class and he had a very specific grading policy about it and I, I I went to him and I said listen this very weird thing happened and I was actually in the hospital completely unexpectedly and so I, I had to miss class and he was like well did you tell me beforehand and I was like obviously not and he was like well okay I guess that's the one that you get for free which is how his policy worked and I was like Man, I get your policy, but seriously, uh, it was very strange. That turned out fine. I did very well in that class, but that was one of a number of experiences I've had. Maybe I haven't talked about that that much, where sometimes people are like, well, I have a hard line and this is how you deal with it. And there are all kinds of unintended, obviously, but also really unforeseeable and sometimes just straight up unfair secondary and tertiary consequences to having weird health problems. So that was one of them. And when the pass finally cleared, I came up to see you that very next weekend. And I was on the bus and still not sure, am I going to visit Ari in the hospital or am I going to be taking him home? Mm -hmm. And I got there and you were in the hospital parking lot and we drove back to your apartment together. Right. You picked me up, I think. And when we got there, I want to say this because it was a really, really kind thing. Eric's girlfriend, Taylor, who had gone with you guys to drop you off at the hospital, Mm -hmm. had gone back to your apartment and cleaned everything up. Yes. So when we got back to your apartment, there was no weeks old vomit in there. All of your things had been cleaned up. It was just this really nice, tidy apartment that we could go back to after you were still recovering. Mm-hmm. And it was just an exceptionally kind, sweet thing for somebody to do. And I don't, I will never forget that somebody did that because yeah. it seems small, but it was such a wonderful thing. Yeah, it, it really was. There's some ways in which at the time I didn't even realize how bad I think the cleanup probably had needed to be. But it was kind of amazing to walk into an apartment that was that tidy and clean because I certainly was not that tidy. So after I came home, I was, you know, I was better, but it was weird because I'd been, I'd been in the hospital for a week. I was back on the patch medication and, you know, stable again and darn certain that I was not going to stop taking it. So then I carried on for, for a while. And I think we're going to pick up the next part of the story after you carrying on mm-hmm. in our next episode. And we're going to move on to listener mail. Okay. And we've got one letter this week, and I'm actually going to paraphrase a bit of it and then just read some of it. All right. But this is a letter from Ari's friend, Andy. He was a friend of Ari's since childhood. You guys went to high school together. Mm-hmm. And, and middle school. 
So yeah, he I'm in gonna, elementary I, school. Again, I'm going to skip quite a bit, but I, and, and paraphrase a lot. But he brings up some interesting things that I want to talk about. Plus, there's some interesting um, historical documents. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so one of the things that he writes is, I have a memory, and I guarantee that it didn't happen this way. This is just an Ari's sick composite memory, but that's how memory works. I remember stopping by your house on a weekend in high school and standing at your doorstep, and your mother telling me that you were still in bed. And this was like three in the afternoon. Mm -hmm. And I remember not being quite able to process it. I, of course, knew something by then about your condition and that you were sleeping a lot and that you were missing a lot of school. And I knew that it was serious. But I remember a dawning realization that this was perhaps more serious than I was fully appreciating. And I remember standing on your doorstep staring at your mother. And I felt firmly during that period that between what you had told me and what I had heard from your folks, I knew all that you wanted me to know, and it would be rude to ask a lot of questions. But I remember standing there and desperately wanting to ask questions, both because this was outside my experience and I was curious, but even more because I knew what was happening to you was isolating, and I might be better and a more helpful friend if I had a sense of what was going on. And so one of the things he brings up um, after talking about that, and I've gotten questions from other people about this too, is that how to be a good friend to someone mm -hmm. when it's okay to ask questions. What can I do to help you more? And we've gotten emails from other people saying, oh, I felt like I should have been a better help to you or a better friend. Yeah. And one of the things that Andy brings up here is wanting to be helpful, wanting to do more, but also wanting to respect the autonomy of a disabled person and yeah. not offering help when it's not appreciated. Right. So I was wondering if you could talk a bit about that. You know, I think this is a thing that I really don't have answers to. Uh, I, I wish I did because I, I feel like almost in a, a broader sense, this isn't just about disability. And I'm speaking especially as somebody who works with kids now and has for a number of years that it seems like the thing to say and that I've heard other people and trainers talk about, you know, it maybe the issue is the student or the kid or the friend has a, a health issue. Or maybe the issue is maybe something's going on at home or they're going through some other emotional thing. I mean, all these things have emotional components, obviously. But what I've heard trainers say is ask, be kind, but ask, but don't be nosy, but ask. The thing is, is that like, sure, but I've done that. I still do that sometimes. You say like, hey, can I ask you about this? And many, many times... What I have seen is, and again, this is from my perspective with students, but I've seen a student say, oh, sure, you can ask me about it. And maybe not, oh, sure, but okay, they will say. And then they seem really uncomfortable and they will go through the process with you. And maybe it is ultimately helpful, like of talking and responding to your questions and saying some of their feelings. But it's also, at least sometimes, very clearly not what they want. So... What I was going to say more about me and my experience is that part of what was interesting reading this note and, and some other things from people when they're saying, you know, I wanted to know, but then I thought you were probably telling me as much as you wanted me to know and things like that, is that I honestly thought that people knew. Like, it was so present for me, and I was in the, like, narcissism and self-absorption of my teenage self Essentially, to me, I had a sign on my forehead, or if if not some kind of, I don't know, pulsing beacon saying, this person has kidney disease, and here's all the weird stuff about him, and you should be aware that all of this stuff, because certainly people talked about it. You know, I talked about rumors of me being dead and stuff. Certainly people were aware I was sick all the time, and this was a very good friend of mine who I, I knew I had told, oh, I have kidney problems, and here's this, and here's this, and I probably had not. And it wasn't because I didn't want him to know. It was because essentially I thought I had, or rather, I thought he did know because I knew, and thus everybody knows the things I know because I'm 16. Everybody knows the things I'm really embarrassed about because I'm super embarrassed about it, and everybody must know. And maybe embarrassment is the wrong thing there, but I think we can all kind of understand this feeling of teenagerhood and everybody must know already. And so when it comes to advice... Gosh, I don't know. It's really easy to say, you know, be there and listen. But I think what some people are asking a lot in these emails or implying, do you think in your life there are times when you would have appreciated more help? And what form could that have taken? Or do you think that this is sort of the best that we could all do? Boy, that's a really good question. 
it's really hard for me to say because I think that I've spoken in several episodes about that feeling of isolation, that feeling of loneliness, that feeling of people don't understand, and all of that is real. But also, and maybe I didn't express this well enough, that I knew and I, I know now that people were trying to help and not just were, were you all <laughs> trying to help, you were succeeding. I was helped. Andy, I think you're going to read some more things about what he did, but he was very, very helpful uh, a few years later. And during that time as well, people that I went to college with at Central, we're not just talking about Eric specifically, affirmatively, like showing up and taking me to the hospital where they kept me from dying. But just having friends is a big deal. It's helpful. Having people willing to be normal with you when there's all this other lack of normalcy is a huge, huge deal. I can say that, sure, sometimes it would have been nice to talk about, boy, this is really hard with this thing or that thing. But the fact is, and this is part of why I, I, I wanted to do this podcast when you suggested it, is that chronic disease is not super common. And a lot of people can't relate to all the weird things that it encompasses. They can maybe say, oh, yeah, my grandma was sick, but that's really not the same. And so if I start talking about, I'm trying to think of an example. I have, we have episodes of examples now. This one thing happening with me, or hey, boy, it was super strange and odd and kind of freaks me out. I was in the hospital for a month. You know, I'm a pretty compassionate person. I know a lot of compassionate people. I was friends with compassionate and empathic people at the time. You included those people, none of them knew what that was like. They can say, yeah, that is weird. That must be really hard for you. And like, yep, it is. And I'm not, I'm not trying to be flippant there, but it is. And it's like, what else do you say? If you don't have that in common and you don't know, it's, it's difficult. And so as the person with this big problem that I'm also the person with the most experience dealing with it almost every time I'm talking about this kind of thing or I'm meeting with somebody and it is more stressful to the extent that it's stressful or more difficult or more challenging for me to guide you through helping me which wouldn't be that much help anyway. And I don't, I'm not trying to be dismissive of help people could give, but I, I'm mostly okay. You know, it, it would be more challenging and more stressful to guide you through helping and understanding what the issue was than it would be if it's just, Hey, could we just be friends here? Could we just hang out and talk about whatever silly or serious things other than this are? Most of the time, that's what I and I think just about anybody in a situation kind of like this needs. Okay. One of the other things that yeah. was included in this piece of mail, because you and Andy have been friends for a very long time. Very long time. Were some very old emails that he found between the two of you. Yes, and this is totally not embarrassing at all. So I want to read this email from Ari Deckard, uh, dated Sunday, April 21st, 1996. <laughs> So that date is several months before Ari's first kidney transplant. And the subject is, sorry, actual brain fade is occurring. Yeah. And the email goes like this. I could have sworn your birthday was the 18th. Oh, well. According to my doctor, my brain functions, short-term memory, etc. are supposed to deteriorate temporarily in conjunction with my kidney function. I guess you got proof positive that I'm really somewhat clueless out here. Actually... I was supposed to be starting dialysis this weekend, but apparently my condition is not bad enough for me to start. I'm starting to wish that I could start anyway, because right now I'm extremely worn out all the time, and as you discovered, somewhat confused about details. <laughs> These two factors combine to make school very difficult. Duh. Fortunately, I will probably have had my transplant before I go off to the frigid north of Appleton, Wisconsin. BTW, it recently occurred to me that TSR is located in Lake Geneva, Wisconsin, which might be close to Ambleton. Okay, so you're, you're really just going to totally nerd out me here. All right. We did that long ago. I thought That's maybe true. we'd be able to get through this podcast without revealing how geeky we are, but... Well, I mean, that cat is just out of the bag. That's the thing that's actually on my forehead. TSR, for those of you who don't know, was Tactical Strategy Rules, which is the company who used to publish Dungeons and Dragons. Back to the email you write. Yes. As it happens, it isn't all that close, but it is in the same state. <laughs> all this is to say that while my life sucks right now, it is definitely going to get much better. Updates as they become available, 
Ari Deckard. And I just, I want to point this out because this is really? a visual thing that the, your email signature at the time, oh, boy. you had clearly spent a long time using brackets to make an ASCII art mm-hmm. version of a marimba with the black keys on top and the, the mm-hmm. white keys on the bottom. How long did that take you? A long time. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> um, quite a while. Okay, I've got a second email. All right. This one is titled, More Fun Updates, uh, Wednesday, April 24th, 1996. So So, just a few days later. Yeah. Well, I had an appointment with my friendly local nephrologist yesterday, and now we have a pretty definite plan of action. Inaction, reaction, banging our heads against brick walls, whatever, as far as my kidneys (laughs) go. Sometime in early May, after the 4th, and then parentheses you put PYP concert, Mm Mm-hmm. These surgeon-type guys are going to play around with my veins and arteries in my left arm slash wrist. By doing so, they are somehow going to create an oversized blood vessel to act as an interface with the dialysis machine. Are you thoroughly disgusted yet? I am. (laughs) Once that heals, around June or so, I get to start on dialysis. Insert numerous sarcastic whoopees here, three times a week for four to six hours at a time. Mm -hmm. Once I'm stabilized on dialysis, they can do a transplant. Although the prospect of this surgery scares the living shit out of me in many ways, it also means the end to any number of physical ailments, troubles, problems, and other uncool things I'm experiencing right now. Side effects from the anti-rejection drugs are another matter entirely. Anyway, since there are five moralistic fools in my family so far who have volunteered to go to the table for me, we are planning on having had a transplant and recovered in time for new student week at Lawrence. The only problem is that we have no clue as to when new student week or regular classes or anything else starts at Lawrence next fall. Because of all this, my summer plans have changed somewhat. As I may have told you, I was planning on touring with the Argonauts marching band for three weeks this summer. But that gets going about the same time I will be starting on dialysis, and my doctors don't want anything to interfere with that at the beginning. So I get to attempt to join the workforce again. Insert many more sarcastic exclamations of glee here. The only problem is that I may be forbidden from heavy lifting, which could possibly impede my job possibilities. I guess we'll see. That's the brief ha update of the sitch out here. (laughs) Yeah. So you can see that mostly that is what happened, but also I did not join the workforce. (laughs) I was just not feeling well enough to do that. Uh, I probably put in a few job applications at some places, but it didn't pan out and that was really for the best. I think I also want to say, too, that, you know, I, I, I hope this is clear, but I I definitely feel awkward about these emails because these were, you know, emails between friends who are 19 and <laughs> talking about stuff. This is not the way I was talking about anything with anybody but this friend. And so especially the part where I talk about family members being moralistic fools, that was me I really feel like expressing a feeling of discomfort and embarrassment that people just so willing to do something so monumental. And I, I know I've used that word before, but I don't I don't know of a word that's bigger than monumental. Uh, so big on my behalf that, you know, especially at the time, I kind of felt like, am I even worth this? Is it even going to work? And it's such a big, big deal. And it, you know, it is and it was a big deal. That, you know, I couldn't, couldn't help but use language like that to just, to talk about it because I, because I was uncomfortable. He included one last email that I'm going to read. And this is, um, from February 1999. So this would be after your first transplant failed and you were back at home. It's also after they've removed that first transplant. Yes. And this is not an email you wrote. This is an email he wrote to his then-girlfriend, now-wife, describing visiting with you. Yes. And so he said, I spent the day cooling my heels while Ari slept. The bastards at the dialysis clinic took off too much fluid during dialysis this morning, making him sick. Yeah. So I hung out all day while he slept. I'm going to go back and do it again tomorrow, and probably Thursday, too. I don't quite feel safe leaving the guy by himself. He was still in pretty bad shape after the surgery even before those idiots at the clinic got to him. (laughs) And then he editorializes that this points out how worried everyone is, and that, well, I try to take credit for the plan. I can't imagine that hanging around at your place all day was my idea. This smells like your folks were understandably concerned post-surgery and needed someone to be around while they were at work. Yeah, that's definitely true. Yeah, he came and helped out, just sat with me and um, fetched me jello and things. 
you know, he is very loyally calling the people at, at the clinic idiots. And I certainly felt like that too. I think in retrospect, part of what it was is that it's very difficult when someone is starting on dialysis to determine what is their actual dry weight. And I don't know, the training or the standard practice that as I have experienced it is that they usually want to err on the side of lower rather than higher because it's healthier for you to have to not have any, any, any extra fluid at all. And so they want to get you as dry as possible without actually making you sick. But the fact was that I was not like your average dialysis patient. I had been told not to drink very much, and so I wasn't. And I was really pretty good at that. And also, I was sick all the time, and I kept throwing up when I came home. And so I was not coming on with very much fluid. Like, during that initial period, I'm, I know that I was, like, maybe gaining you know, half a kilogram, which is an incredibly small amount to take off on dialysis. And especially if, let's say my dry weight was, and at that point it would have been, I don't know, maybe 55 to 60 kilos, that if that's what my actual dry weight was, but they would take me down to a kilo below that. So if it was 60 kilos, I would come off the machine at 59, which is too dry, would make me sick, and then I was told not to have fluid, and so I would come back in at maybe like 60.1, which meant they really only needed to take off 0.1, but then they would go, oh, let's go back to 59 again. And it kept making me sick until we finally, over weeks, if not a month or two, edged it back up to what it was supposed to be, and then I was stable. One of the things that's striking to me here is that this this email, every bit of it feels so familiar to me. Mm. Like mm. I feel like I could have written this email. The, the annoyance at the dialysis text, fair, <laughs> fair or unfair, right. that, that kind of unease, like you got to hang around. I don't feel good leaving Ari alone. And it's a good reminder for me, because sometimes we talked about isolation again. Yeah. That I can sometimes have that feeling like, oh, nobody understands how this is. Nobody really gets it. And that is not true. Yeah. And in fact, sometimes I feel like in terms of taking care of Ari, I'm kind of running a long anchor leg in a really long relay. And that there have been lots of people carrying that baton before me yeah. who know how it feels. Yeah. And something this literal where it felt like I, every word of this is something that, I've, that I could have written, that I felt. Yeah. Yeah, for real. Was a, was a good reminder to me. Mm -hmm. And I think that brings us to the final question of the episode. <laughs> okay. Which is, Ari, how are you feeling right now? I'm doing pretty good. I had a doctor's appointment um, a few days ago with my transplant nephrologist, who I see about every six months now. And that went very well. It was very smooth. There are like three main takeaways from that appointment. One was that I wanted to talk to him about the fact that last year I was sick way more often than I would like to be from work. And was there, is there anything more that I could be doing? And, you know, we talked about all the strategies that we usually talk about and I'm doing all those. I'm washing my hands. I'm, you know, not <laughs> licking foreign objects or doing anything ridiculous. But he pointed out that last year was a year when there were several really intense noroviruses and a number of other transplant patients were actually hospitalized several times. And this is, again, because of the immunosuppressants. Right. And so I actually weirdly got off kind of light compared to other people. We talked about that. He pointed out that if, <laughs> if I wasn't a teacher, it'd probably be a little easier. Maybe he suggested I could work on doing a career transition to making silicon wafers so I could wear a bunny suit all the time, and that would be much safer. Uh, he was, of course, joking. Uh, and then the third thing was that I had forgotten this, but several years ago, I agreed to be part of a genetic study because whenever somebody comes to me and says, hey, you want to be part of a medical study? I'm pretty much like, yes, please, because I think science is really important. And I think that, you know, I have a rare disease, and if I can help contribute to that, mostly by taking a survey, which is what it usually is, or a little bit of blood, great. So apparently this, this is a, a genetic study looking at a variety of factors that can influence kidney disease and kidney failure. And they're mostly not looking at a situation like mine, which is 
known to be genetic and hereditary, but I pointed out I actually have Alport syndrome and, you know, that is obviously directly genetic and not related to, oh, you have a history of, say, heart disease and thus you're likely to have kidney problems or something like that, which is what they're looking for. She was very interested, took a whole family history from me. So that that's always fun. I had forgotten that I was gonna that I was in this study because I hadn't heard anything, but now I will. And one of the upshots from that that's kind of interesting is if they find any other interesting or potentially bad or negative genetic markers when they sequence my DNA, they'll let me know, which was not part of the original study. So yay science and yay finding out more about myself. Hopefully I won't because that would mean maybe bad things. But those happen. And then, of course, because I went to the hospital where there's all these sick people, I came home a little sniffly. But I'm getting over that already. And um, I'm actually, tomorrow, we start in with doing orientation for sixth graders. So I'm going to be at school and meeting kids again. It's going to be great. Great. And uh, if you want to get in touch with the KidneyCast, you can send us an email, kidneycast at gmail.com. We're also available on Facebook, facebook.com slash kidneycast or Twitter, at KidneyCast. And if you want to listen to any of our episodes, they are all available with show notes on my website, lauramorris.com, L-A-R-R-A-M-O-R-R-I-S.com. Thank you so much for talking to me this week. Of course, thank you. And uh, thank you so much for listening to the KidneyCast. We'll talk to you next week. Bye.